Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Last week during Life Group, someone asked me if I had finished the series on Tier 1 Doctrines or Doctrines That Define, and I can understand why you would think that. After all, chronologically, we have gone over the last few weeks through the life of Christ. We talked about his virgin birth, and we talked briefly about his sinless life and his substitutionary death and, of course, his victorious resurrection. And then last week, we looked at the fact that he has promised to return once again. And so having gone through all of that, I can see where you might have thought that I was done with this series. But in the words of ESPN analyst Lee Corso, not so fast. We are not done just yet because while we've talked about some great truths, we have not talked at all about how to apply those truths in a very important and specific area. In other words, we've not talked about how we can be saved. It is not just acknowledging the facts that we have dealt with over the last few weeks. The Bible makes it very clear that even the demons do that. And so we are still missing some very critical and crucial pieces to this whole puzzle. Can I be right is our question title this morning. Can I be right? And I am not talking about the idea that all of us want to be right all of the time. And often we think we are, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a much more important question, can I be right with God? And if so, how is that possible? That question and its corresponding answer continues to be the central message of Christianity. How can we, as sinful men and women, somehow be made right with a God who is holy and without and apart from sin. One would think that with so much money and the proliferation of technology that the answer to that question, at least in our country, would be well known by this time. A place where the gospel is widespread, where the word of God is available to us at any moment, And yet there is still a lot of confusion in this area rather than clarity. There are some who are convinced that they don't need to know, that there is no problem, that yes, we might sin some, though they wouldn't use that terminology, but there is no necessity in somehow being made right with God. We are not, they would say, sinners in need of salvation. There are others who do acknowledge that there is a problem, but they either don't know the answer to the question, and so they are confused, or they think they know the answer to the question, but they are not correct. They have an answer, and they think they are right, but biblically speaking, they simply are not, and that's where the majority of our world falls. The majority of the world, both in the United States and around the globe, fall in the category of they think they know what it means to be right with God, and yet they are not correct. 
I'm going to focus on these last two groups this morning. That is those who are confused about the answer and those who are simply not correct about the answer. There are some who who really just don't know and there are others who think they know but they are wrong and that is the, the target audience this morning because if you do not believe there is a problem, chances are you are not here nor listening online. When asked the question, how can I be saved, whether you word it in those terms or not, there are some common answers. Many people will say, I hope so. That is, there is no way you can know for certain, but I hope so. And even in saying that, you can see that there is no urgency in finding out. They are content with a hope so salvation. We'll just figure it all out in the end and we'll see. Others will readily say, yes, I have been saved and I know I am saved. And they will follow that answer with any number of qualifiers. Well, I know I'm saved because I was baptized as a child. Because I made a profession of faith when I was such and such an age. Because I've been a member of a church for as long as I can remember. Others will say, yes, I'm saved because I am a pretty good person. I try to do my best. I do good things now and again. I've heard believers who are convinced and have convinced themselves that family members or friends or right with God, even if they do not show any evidence or fruit of salvation. And so they will say something like, well, I know it doesn't look like they're following Christ, but I remember when they said they believed in Jesus. And besides that, they're living a good moral life. I just wish they went to church. I think the more common idea, whether we put it in these terms or not, is some sort of cosmic scale. That is, there is this scale that is weighing our good and bad, and all we have to do is ever so slightly tip it in the realm of the good, just do a few more good things than we do bad things, and if we tip that scale in the good direction, then we are going to be just fine. That seems to be the way a lot of people believe. It seems to be the way a lot of people live. This idea that they can do enough good things to outweigh the bad. And when they think about that scale, they invariably compare themselves to others who are not nearly as good as them. And so it seems we're always tipping the scale in the right direction. I suppose there are a few who simply believe that everyone is going to heaven. God is a good God. There are a few exceptions some notable examples of gross immorality and sin. But by and large, God is a loving God, and most folks are going to go to heaven. So what is the truth? That's what we want to consider today. We want to consider a message about justification by faith alone. And this message is not just for those who have not believed. It is for them, but it is not just for them. It is also for those who have recently believed and for those of us who have believed many years ago because as we're going to see, the basis by which we are saved, and that is faith alone, is also the basis by which we are to live our lives. Having been saved by faith, we are to continue to live by faith. And so the way to grow in godliness is the same way we come to faith 
in Christ. Our text this morning is Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. As we think about this question, can I be right? And hopefully you know that the correct answer is yes. Of course, you can be made right with God. That's what salvation and the cross is all about. But we're going to see that that must come through faith and through faith alone. Galatians 2 verse 15. We ourselves, Paul writes, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Can I be right with God, and if so, how? Well, first I want you to see that being right with God is on the basis of faith, not law. And this is a crucial distinction because, again, the majority of the world's religions and many within Christianity believe that good works or keeping of the law is the basis for a right relationship with God. But as you see in this text, this is not the testimony of the Bible, which means all of those who come to the conclusion that we are saved by working our way to heaven are in this category of confused about salvation or simply not correct about salvation because if they are trying to work their way into heaven without realizing it, they are following a deadly error. Now, we are jumping into the middle of a discussion or a dialogue that Paul is having with the church in Galatia due to some Judaizers who had come into the church after him. Judaizers meaning that they were professing believers who, who proclaimed that you had to add Jewish elements to the faith in order to be right with God, primarily circumcision and the keeping of the law. And we've seen this oftentimes in the New Testament where there is this overriding belief early on in the church that one had to become a Jew in certain respects in order to truly be right with God. Or to put it in our terms, faith was not enough. Faith was good, and it is not to be denied, but it is faith plus, in this case, works of the law. Another aspect of this was the whole relationship between Jews and Gentiles. We know from several stories in the New Testament that Jews simply did not like Gentiles. That's what Paul means in verse 15. Look at that again. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Paul is not trying to say here that he is not a sinner. He has made cases elsewhere that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, while at the same time calling himself the chief of sinners. 
So he is not saying that he is not a sinner, but he is simply calling Gentiles by the name that Jews called them. A Gentile was synonymous with a sinner. But Paul's concern here is not a racial one. It is not a social one. This is a gospel issue going to the very heart of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be made right with God. So for our understanding this morning, we are made right or justified, and we'll define that term a little bit later, not by works of the law, but by faith. So therefore, what is the place of the law? Now, naturally, when we think of the law, we think of laws in society, speed limits, petty theft, breaking and entering, violent crimes. That's the kind of things we think about when we think about laws, not salvation. But the Israelite law was not a social law. It was a religious law. They were governed by a theocracy. That is, God was their ruler. They were not governed by a democracy like we are where the people rule. So therefore, the law of the land was in many ways synonymous with the law of God much like in many Muslim countries today where there is very little, uh, there is a lot of overlap, meaning the laws of the land are essentially synonymous with the religious laws. And as a result, the keeping of the law was what made one right with God in their minds. And so the Pharisees in Jesus' day boasted of keeping the law and urged others to follow their example. And the Pharisees, to help other people, interpreted the law down to its minutest detail so that there was no ambiguity. Everybody knew what laws you were to follow, exactly what you could and could not do in order to be right with God. And the consequences was that it became very burdensome. That following all of these, not only written laws in the Word of God, but the oral laws of the religious leaders became extremely burdensome and weighed the people down, which is why when Jesus came, he said to them, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for my burden is light and my yoke is easy. He was not saying that it's easy to follow Christ, but he was saying compared to all of the laws that the Pharisees are heaping upon your shoulders, following me is much lighter. Of course, if keeping the law means being right with God, hell well, do we have to do it? I mean, that's the question, right? If obedience to the law makes one right with God, then how obedient do you have to be? How much is enough? What percentage of the law do I have to keep, or what percentage of the time do I have to keep the law? I mean, where is this scale? Well, one way to curve our score, if we use school terminology, is we can lower the standard. And so we decide, by law, he must have meant the Ten Commandments. And so all we have to do is keep the Ten Commandments. And so a quick reading of those, you might decide, well, I've done pretty well there. Maybe I've not been perfect, not kept them all, but I've done most of them, or I've kept most of them, until we go over to the Sermon on the Mount and hear Jesus' interpretation. And Jesus says, oh, oh, you haven't committed adultery? Well, have you lusted in your heart? Because lust, he says, is equivalent to adultery. Oh, you haven't murdered anybody? Congratulations. But he says, if you had hatred in your heart one toward another, then it's the equivalent of murder. And so when we look at even the Ten Commandments, if we boil it down to that, and that's not the answer, but if we boil it down to that, and yet we interpret those commandments through the eyes of Jesus, we come to understand that we haven't kept hardly any of those, if any at all. 
If those are just the bare minimum, then we still stand guilty. So what is the place of the law? Well, it's not to save us. Otherwise, verse 21 makes very clear that Christ has died in vain. For if righteousness were through the law, then what's the purpose of Christ dying? If we can be right with God by being good, then why did Jesus come of a virgin so that he did not inherit the sin nature? Why then did he live a sinless life and die a vicarious death if I can do enough good things for my own salvation? And so it is clear, verse 16, that no one is made right with God or justified on the basis of keeping the law. Because the place of the law was never for salvation, the place of the law was for condemnation. That is leading us to the conclusion that we stand guilty before the law and therefore need a savior. Because the Bible says that if we transgress the law in even one area, we are guilty of all. A lawbreaker is someone who breaks the law. It doesn't matter which particular law you break. If you break the law, you are a lawbreaker. You are a transgressor. And so the only way to be saved is by perfectly keeping the law, which we've said in several sermons, there is only one who has been able to do that, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And we'll see next week that that is the reason then that he is the only Savior. There are not many paths to God because there's only one sinless substitutionary sacrifice, and therefore it is an exclusive path to God. But that's next week. Those who recognize their sin problem, that they haven't perfectly kept the law, know they need some way to be right with God. But how? Well, the law was actually meant to help get us to that point. The law was given so that we could see that we are sinners and therefore need salvation. The Bible says that the law is a revealer of sin. Romans 7 and verse 7, I would not have known sin except through the law. So the law is not evil or bad. Instead, it points us to our need for justification before God, revealing our sin and therefore driving us to seek a Savior. Now, when it comes to the law, we have to be very careful about two extremes. One is legalism, that is, once again, the idea that I can keep the law in order to be right with God, and that's something we talked about in our life groups from 1 Corinthians a few weeks ago. Or secondly, license, that now the law means nothing and I can live any way I want to. Neither is the proper approach. The place of the law is to reveal our guilt and ultimately point us to a Savior. So we've seen this morning that we can be right with God, but it is through faith, not the law. But secondly, we need to see that this kind of faith is faith in Christ. Look again at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. That's what we've just talked about. But through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is one of those words that we use often in church. We see it often in the Bible. And yet sometimes we don't know exactly what it means. And so we need to start with a definition of faith. Paul uses the word faith 142 times in the New Testament. And he uses the verb form, which is translated believe. You see, there's no verb form of faith. But the word believe is often the same word, faith, in the verb form. He uses that another 54 times. 
And yet in spite of the many, many times this word is used in the New Testament, it's, it's really never defined in the New Testament. Hebrews comes the closest when Hebrews says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I like this definition. The commitment of one's life to Christ on the basis of the acceptance of the message concerning him. You see, it brings in those two elements. It is not just believing or saying we believe, but it is a committing of our life to Christ on the basis of who he is and the message that he has proclaimed. So faith is believing in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has accomplished, but not just a head knowledge of the truth. It is believing to the point that we place our trust in him and now we are trusting in his work to bring about a right relationship with God rather than our own works or rather than anyone or anything else. And as we'll see in a moment, this kind of faith leads to a transformed life. And I'm being repetitive about that because I want you to understand that faith is not the repetition of a few words. I believe in Jesus. How many countless people have said that? with no sign of any kind of transformation in their life. And yet they are convinced that they are on the road to heaven merely because they've repeated a few words. Faith must be more than the repetition of a few words. It is the commitment of one's life to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So that's the definition of faith. But because we use faith in so many different ways, not only in the Bible, but outside of the Bible, we need to talk about the object of faith. You see, I can say things like, I have faith in my team that they are going to pull out the victory. I have faith in my family that they're going to be with me no matter what. I have faith in the future that everything is going to work out okay. I have faith in my doctor that he's going to discover what's causing my pain and chart me a course for a cure. Those are all valid uses of the word faith. And so what we need to understand is that we're talking about a specific kind of faith, a faith in Christ, which is the only way to be made right with God, not all of these other kinds of faith. So all faith is not equal. Faith is only as good as its object. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, as long as you're sincere, that's the important thing. As long as you're sincere in what you believe, then, then you're going to be okay. But if you're sincerely wrong about the object of your faith, it doesn't matter how sincere you are. You can be 1,000% committed to the wrong thing, and it's not proper faith. So the object of our faith is significant, and clearly again, verse 16, the object of our faith is Christ which means you must know who he is. That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. You must know what he did and what he accomplished on your behalf. You must believe in the right Jesus, otherwise your faith is in vain, no matter how serious or committed you might be. So if we understand that to be right with God is on the basis of faith, not law, and that that faith must be in Christ, that is the object of our faith. What is the result of this kind of faith? Well, multiple times in this text, we see the word justified. That is the result of faith, justification. Justification is a legal term, which means we are declared righteous before God. 
that we now enjoy a right standing with God and a right relationship, having been accepted by God on the basis of what Christ has done for us and our expression of faith in that. That's what the word justified means. It's a legal declaration that you are now right with God. And there are two main aspects to this faith once it is exercised. You place your faith and trust in Christ and what he has done. And in return, justification, you get forgiveness of sins. Your sin problem is now solved. And that doesn't mean you'll never sin again. But it means that the penalty and the payment for your sin has been paid for by Christ and accepted by God the Father. Which means, secondly, you are not only forgiven of your sins, but you have his righteousness imputed to you. Christ's righteousness, that is his sinless life, his keeping of the law, has now been put over onto your account so that you have been declared justified on the basis of the work of Christ. All of this done by his grace, not your goodness, not any merit on our part, but grace being the unmerited favor of God. And we struggle mightily with this because in most other areas of life, we tend to see or at least expect a cause and effect. You reap what you sow. It's a biblical principle, but not when it comes to salvation. You reap what you sow does not apply to salvation because we don't deserve it. God helps those who help themselves. An unbiblical statement. That's not what the Bible says. If something good happens, God is blessing. If something bad happens, then God is getting you back for something you've done. That's what Job's friends kept telling him. And that's what we often secretly believe, even though we know it's not the truth. You get what you deserve, either positively or negatively. You see, this kind of thinking is so ingrained in our thoughts and in our minds that we have a hard time with this image of grace. We might accept it, but deep down we really don't believe it because we really believe people are blessed for what they do and cursed for what they don't do. But we are made right with God, not on the basis of what we do. We are made righteous with God on the basis of his grace. So the place of the law is to show us our sin and our need for a savior, and the place of faith is to give us forgiveness and righteousness, those twin aspects of justification. You may remember a parable that Jesus told about two men who came to the temple in order to pray. One of those men was a Pharisee. Now you know that a Pharisee in Jesus' day was very righteous, very conservative, very religious. I mean, they were the kind of men that we would readily welcome into our church. And they are the kind of men that once they came into our church, we would quickly want to give them a position of leadership. These are the kind of men that you would nominate as a deacon. Now, I am not saying that our deacons are Pharisees. Don't misquote me. I'm simply saying that we have a hard time seeing it that way because we know the Pharisees as the constant combatants with Jesus. And so we have a negative view of them. But in their day, they were the conservative, righteous, religious people of the day, far above everybody else. And so one of these men that comes to the temple is a Pharisee, and he comes down to the altar in order to pray. But if you read the parable carefully, he doesn't ask Jesus for one single thing. He doesn't ask God for anything. 
Because deep down, he doesn't think he needs it. All he does when he goes to the temple is recite his resume. He tells God all of the good things that that he's done, far beyond what is even required or what most people do. And then there is another man in this parable who comes to the temple in order to pray. This man is a tax collector. And in those days, again, I'm not saying it's true today. Well, in some sense it is because we're all sinners. But in that day, a tax collector was synonymous with a sinner. He was a traitor. He was a cheat. And so tax collectors and sinners often are seen side by side in the terminology of the New Testament. And so this tax collector comes to the temple in order to pray, and he won't even go down to the altar. He won't even lift up his his face. But he keeps his eyes cast down, and he repeatedly simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus, at the end of that parable, says, which one of these men went home justified? That same word that we find here. And, of course, the answer is not the self-righteous Pharisee. The answer is the man man who recognized that he was a sinner and cried out for God's mercy. So it is only faith in Christ that justifies. It is only faith in Christ that makes us right with him. But now what does all of this mean once we are saved, once we have embraced Christ by faith? We then see here that we have faith for living You see, faith is not a one-time experience, and this is where we get confused. We think faith is to be exercised one time in order to be saved, saving faith, we call it, and then we are done with it. But that is not what we see here. This is a faith in Christ that ultimately is a faith for living because it is a faith that transforms. In verses 20 and 21, these are some of the most famous verses in this particular text or in this particular book, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live how? By faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says that faith for living means that we are dead to the law, verse 19. Again, he's not giving us a license to sin here. He makes that abundantly clear in Romans. This is not antinomianism that is against the law. This is not license. He is saying he died to the law as a means of salvation. As a former Jew and as a former Pharisee, Paul previously believed that righteousness with God came by doing good. And now he's saying, I've died to that idea. I no longer believe that that is the right way to God. Both he and Peter have now come to the understanding that justification is by faith and not by law. So that in that sense, the law has no further claim or control over the believer. Again, this does not mean that there are not biblical laws to follow. There are. This does not mean we can cast them all aside and live any way we want to. It simply means that the keeping of the law does not save us, but we desire to keep the commands of God after salvation because we desire to please our Lord. And there's a big difference between those two things. So we are dead to the law, and secondly, we are alive in Christ, in part because we've been crucified with him. Now, obviously, he's not speaking literally here. Paul is not saying that you and I climbed up on the cross and were somehow crucified next to Jesus or that we somehow suffered along with him. 
But this is what baptism pictures. When we put someone in the waters of baptism, and one of the reasons we do it by immersion as a Baptist church is because we believe it best pictures this. And so we say when you go down into the water, we are buried with Jesus by baptism unto death. It is a symbolic view of the fact that we have died to our old way of life. And then when we pull them up out of the water, we are raised to walk in newness of life. We are alive now in Christ. Our old life is gone. That is dead to us. And we have now been raised to live a new life, a transforming life, a life lived by faith. So much so that it is no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, you talk about transformation. That's transformation. It's not me living any longer. It is Christ living in me, which all of that results in life or living by faith. That is why I said that at the outset that this is a message for all of us. It is a message for the unbeliever who needs to be saved or for the person who is confused about salvation and thought you could do enough good deeds and now hopefully you've seen that no one is justified by works of the law. It must be by faith in Jesus Christ. It is for a new believer to be strengthened in their faith and reminded of where their faith is to be, but it's also for the believer who's been a believer for years and years for us to live by faith. So that just as we are saved by faith, that is what we now live by. Faith replaces works as a means of salvation, and then faith works because we have been saved. Or as has been famously saved, said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Which means we are saved by faith alone, but that kind of faith is a faith that then works. That is, it is a faith that transforms. So we live by faith in Christ. Very quickly, look at chapter 3, verse 3, if you still have your Bibles open. Chapter 3, verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the, the flesh? And so Paul is saying, don't you understand that if you're saved by faith, then you are to live by faith. In the same manner in which you embraced Christ, that is by faith, you are to keep on living in Christ. That is also by faith. You say, well, how can I know if I'm doing that? Because after all, faith is somewhat inward. It is somewhat subjective. And I would say to you, it's not quite as subjective as you might think. Because it manifests itself in the way we live. I'm borrowing this from someone else. In fact, Aaron brought it up on our staff retreat this week. It's not from him. He's quoting someone else. You ought to be able to look at three things in your life. Because if you really are saved by faith and living by faith, these three things ought to be evident. That is, you have a love for Christ, you have a love for his word, and you have a love for his church. And if you do not have those three things, then you have every reason to question whether or not you are really right with God. Verse 20, of course, is the gospel in a nutshell, a wonderful verse to memorize and to meditate upon. And its basic truth is extremely important. Luther said, Martin Luther, that this doctrine of justification by faith alone is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. If you stand here on justification by faith alone, then you have the foundation for the future. If you do not stand upon justification by faith alone, then everything else crumbles. 
And he certainly stood upon this. This is the doctrine that totally transformed his life when he came to terms with the idea that he couldn't work his way to heaven as a monk, but he needed justification by faith. And I'll remind you that this coming Sunday is not Halloween, as some of you call it. It is Reformation Day. It is the anniversary of that day when Martin Luther nailed those theses to the church door in Germany, reminding us of this core truth that we are saved by faith alone. So do you need to be made right with God today? There is only one way. It is by faith alone. Have you already done that? Then don't be so foolish as to think you can keep your salvation by working for it. You are now to live by faith, even as you are saved by faith. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word and for the wonderful truth that we don't have to work our way to heaven that there is a way to be made right with you, and it is not on the basis of our works, but it is on the basis of our faith and trust in all that you've done through Christ for us. And we thank you for that and pray that we would never lose sight of justification, being made right with God on the basis of faith. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.